Welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. In this edition, we'll be discussing the positive attributes of combat sports. Hello, I'm Ian Abernethy, and thanks for listening in to the podcast. Uh, the first thing I need to do is apologise for the gap between this podcast and the last one. Uh, I've just been way too busy on, on other things and haven't had the chance to uh, to record the podcast up until now. Uh, so uh, thanks for bearing with me. Uh, I'll try and get the next one out uh, <laughs> uh, relatively soon. Uh, but again, just to reassure everyone, these podcasts will never stop. You know, I uh, enjoy them greatly and I, I can't ever see me want to stop doing them so if there's a gap it's just because I'm busy on other things that there the will be an addition forthcoming you know um okay so just bits of news before we get into the main theme uh, one is I'm running my first instructor's course for uh, five years so if you're interested in, in becoming a, a kind of uh, bunkai instructor with me um then uh, you need to check out the uh, new section of ianabernethy.com. We've got like, four or five places left on it, I think. Um, so if you just go to the news page, look for the instructor's course details, you can find it all there. Uh, I, that's going to be held in the UK in August, and in 2015 I will be running one in Germany. Uh, I had hoped to do that uh, this year, but it coincides with the um, uh, Chuck Norris's ITC in Las Vegas, so... Um, I'm obviously going to Las Vegas, which means that uh, we can't do it the weekend I'd planned. So, uh, but we will reschedule that for 2015 for those based in uh, in Germany. So, uh, just keep an eye on the newsletters and Facebook and etc. for that. Uh, the other thing is just on the seminars generally, um, booked up quite solid now for the next 18 months or so. If you go to uh, seminars on the website and click on that, you'll see a seminar dates. Uh, tab comes up click that and you can see all the upcoming seminar dates um, in you know find the ones in your area also if you subscribe to the newsletter i'll send out details every you know four five six weeks something like that so if you can keep an eye on those um, those details and obviously you'll make sure that uh, we can meet up when i'm in your area all right so um let's uh, get on to the main theme of the podcast which is uh, in defensive sport often feel that uh, combat sports and their relationship to you know the traditional arts and reality-based self-defense is always a controversial topic and you know, i thought it was about time i kind of gave my own views on the subject one of the never-ending controversies in the martial arts is the role and influence of combat sports some are ardent supporters, and some see the sporting side of the martial arts as a heresy that should be challenged and slighted at every opportunity. Those who would class themselves as traditional martial artists often see the modern sporting offspring of the traditional arts as an aberration that is a betrayal of the values, objectives and ethos of their non-sporting forerunners. Those who concentrate on civilian self-protection are also often quick to slight combat sports for their limitations, rules and their lack of realism. For my part, I see myself as a traditional martial artist who emphasises karate's traditional role and objective, which is providing an effective physical solution to the problems of civilian violence. While I've competed in various combat sports, it's never been where my heart was and it's never been the overriding objective of my training. If I were true to stereotype, then I'd be expected to be very anti-sport. That's most certainly not the case, however. 
I think the sporting expression of the martial arts in all their various guises are hugely positive pursuits and in this podcast I'd like to share the reasons for my thinking. So in this podcast I'm going to come out in defense of sport against the traditional and reality-based naysayers. The reason I feel the need to do this is that our combat athletes are normally incredibly bad at doing it. The arguments put forward in defense of sport to the traditional and reality-based communities are normally very poor. They are frequently illogical, unsound, and actually bolster the arguments made against sport. I also feel that the traditional and reality-based communities can get more than a little arrogant when they run down sport, which in turn raises the hackles of the combat sport practitioners because they see the sport they love and all their skills and hard work slighted. Those in the traditional and reality-based communities could also do with a greater understanding and appreciation of sport, just as those in the combat sports communities could do with a greater understanding and appreciation of tradition and the realities of criminal violence. Within the overarching world of martial arts, there is room for, and value in, all the various aspects of what we do. If we acknowledge and value the expertise and skills of practitioners of other aspects of martial arts, as much as we value the expertise and skill of those from our own particular martial subset, then the martial arts as a whole would benefit from the united front and we could all spend our energies building up what we do, instead of wasting time pointlessly trying to bring others down. So let's make a start on the various issues surrounding the topic. I mean, one of the most frequent attacks made against combat sports is they lack realism for a, from a self-protection perspective. Take any combat sport you like and you'll see attacks made against it on this basis. So to give us a few examples, you know, if people talk about points karate, it's, well, there's too much jumping around at long range and the control punches mean that power is never developed. Uh, for Kyokushin, they say, well, there's no head punches, which leaves practitioners vulnerable to head punches in real situations. Uh, for MMA, they say, well, there's too much time on the ground, which is suicidal in real situations. Uh, for Judo, well, there's too heavy a reliance on the gi, and the total lack of strikes leads to dangerous habits when striking is put back into the mix, you know, i.e. fighting with the hands low and the head forward. Uh, boxing, well, the lack of kicking and grappling make it too one-dimensional, and the reliance on gloves for cover has no relevance to bare-fisted uh, self-protection scenarios. Tie boxing, you know, well, the knees and elbows from the clinch are all well and good, but the lack of takedowns into groundwork means that a potential area of conflict is entirely ignored, and so on. I mean, the thing is, all of these arguments are valid, right? So, I mean, so case closed, you know, sports rubbish, right? Well, you know, I don't think so, because all the arguments are based on the huge misunderstanding that sport is preparation for self-protection, instead of an end in itself. Nevertheless, we frequently see the various combat sports attacked on this basis, and bizarrely, we also see practitioners of combat sports trying to validate what they do on this basis as well. The bottom line is that all combat sports are a poor preparation for self-protection. And not because of the nuances of the individual sports just mentioned, it's because all combat sports are one-on-one -on -one fights and self-protection has nothing to do with fighting. If you are truly interested in effectively preparing to deal with criminal and civilian violence, then it's not fighting skills you need, but training in the nature of crime, awareness training, i.e., you know, what to be aware of and how to maintain that state of awareness. You need verbal de-escalation skills. Uh, you need a, an assessment of lifestyle and a healthy attitude to personal security. You need a knowledge of the law and so on. Train any combat sport or traditional martial art for that matter you like, and it's very rare that these skills will be taught. Um, training in combat sports to learn self-protection is a little like taking swimming lessons to get good at soccer. There is some crossover in terms of physical fitness, but everyone would acknowledge that it's a poor idea. 
no one would ever try to state, you know, well, swimming is better than weightlifting when it comes to preparing for soccer because they both have a cardiovascular fitness requirement. So if you want to get good at football, you should swim. You know, everyone would hopefully agree that if you wanted to get good at uh, soccer, you should train in soccer. Likewise, with self-protection. If you want to get good at self-protection, you should train specifically for that. Most martial artists don't get the difference between self-protection and fighting, and that's why this illogical thinking persists. Sport is not self-protection. Sport is sport. Practitioners of combat sports should not try to claim validity for their sport by claiming it is an ideal preparation for self-protection. The sport has validity in and of itself. Likewise, traditionalist and reality-based self-defense types should not deride sport for being what it is. To my way of thinking, belittling sport because it is a sport and not self-protection is a little like criticising oranges because they are not apple enough. Combat sports have many inherent values that do not require a dodgy appeal to the very limited crossover with self-protection. Now what I'd now like to do is look at some of these inherent values. And as part of that, I want to compare and contrast with self-protection and traditional martial arts. And while the comparison with self-protection is not a good one, there are many other contrasts where sport martial arts can trump their reality-based and traditional counterparts. And I feel it is to these areas that combat sports practitioners should point when they're wishing to express their inherent value of their chosen path. Um, so the first one is an objective measure of skill. Uh, when it comes to an objective measure of skill, sport martial arts have a huge advantage over their traditional and reality-based uh, counterparts. Sadly, the vast majority of traditional systems uh, measure progress against dictates of style, arbitrary grading systems, uh, the technical and aesthetic preferences of the head of that particular group, or style, and so on. Uh, it should be obvious that we are always best served by measuring by effect, but that's not generally how traditional systems operate. Instead of measuring by effect, they measure by what I call artificial success criteria. These criteria often have no relationship to the effect or function of the technique, but instead are entirely based on some other arbitrary and unobjective measure. This is not, and should not, be the case in my view, but it is nevertheless the case for the vast majority of traditionalists. And things are a little better in the reality-based self-defense world, as they will pressure test via scenario training. However, such scenarios are never real. They can be realistic, but the needs of safety mean they're always a long way from being real. It's also you know, both extremely unwise, not to mention illegal, to seek out real-life tests of their physical self-protection skills. In contrast to both the traditionalist and the realist, the combat sports practitioner has an objective and real test of their chosen skill set. The rules of the sport provide a true and objective test of their skills, and hence they are far better placed to be able to ascertain and hence improve their skill level. As already discussed, comparisons with, to, to self-protection are largely illogical and unnecessary. But when viewed as a self-contained skill set, which determines its own inherent values, sport is the only aspect of the martial arts that can be seen to have a true, objective and honest test that is available to all practitioners. Uh, this leads me to the closely related second positive point of combat sports, and that is that they encourage uh, honesty and humility. Now my thoughts on this are sure to upset a few people because it's largely an accepted given in traditional circles that sport builds ego and is hence inferior to the traditional practice which seeks to control the ego. Now I'm afraid I don't buy that argument as all the evidence I have seen suggests to me that egos actually run riot most often in the traditional sphere 
and that's because of the lack of the aforementioned objective testing. Competitors in combat sports are forced to accept their place in the pecking order and simply can't believe they are better than they are. If a competitor loses, they have to accept that the other person was better, leaving aside any questions of uh, refereeing competence. This generally makes the dedicated competitor humble and keen to improve. If they try to convince themselves that they know it all, then they won't improve, and will continue to be beaten by those practitioners who are seeking continual improvement. It therefore becomes obvious that they're deluded about their actual ability. Traditionalists tend to establish their place in the pecking order via things like rank, lineage, the ability of those who taught them, and so on. It's an unobjective measure, and hence inflated egos can run unchecked. Add that to all the bowing, belts and titles, and it's easy to see why the claim that traditional martial arts suppress ego is not always lived up to, and generally speaking does not bear close scrutiny. The reality-based people have a similar issue. The fact that in the Western world violent crime is relatively rare means that you know they don't have an objective test. Uh, we'd also accept that no one in their right mind would want to be the target of criminals simply to test their skills. This means that reality-based practitioners are largely untested and once again can easily develop an unrealistic view of what they are capable of. The very fact that the words reality-based are now so prevalent confirms this. I mean, does anyone knowingly practice delusional self-protection? You know, of course not, but we know there's lots of it about. And the reason there's lots of it about is because it's so rarely tested. False claims can be made and egos can run riot and there's no inbuilt mechanism to prevent that as there is with combat sports. Practitioners of combat sports are routinely tested and will always suffer if they overestimate their skills. Even people at the top of any combat sport can fall foul to this by believing the hype and not training as hard as they once did and underestimating opponents. For the combat sports practitioner, rampant ego, not to be confused obviously with honest self-belief and confidence, but rampant ego is almost always suppressed because of the honest objective testing. Even the most arrogant combat athlete will eventually become unstuck because of the effects of that arrogance. They will be forced to reinsess their, uh, their view of their ability if they wish to return to their winning ways. Almost all of the high-level combat athletes it has been my pleasure to know and train with have been hard-working, humble and have had a very realistic view of themselves and their ability. And while that is certainly true of many of the traditionalist and reality-based practitioners I know too, that's often more to do with their inherent nature as opposed to something their training enforces and develops. So the next, you know, value of positive value of sport is uh, is a positive lifestyle. Um, it fosters a positive lifestyle. Success in sport demands discipline, a healthy diet, regular training, avoidance of cigarettes, alcohol, etc. It should be remembered that you know, most violent crime is associated with alcohol. Simply avoiding alcohol and the places where people drink and then get violent is one of the most effective forms of self-protection. So, and I recall talking to a friend of mine who was a keen amateur boxer, and he stated that his boxing was the ultimate form of self-protection for him. Not because of its physical application, but because he spent so much time in the gym, there was no opportunity for him to be targeted by criminals. You know, <laughs> he has a point. Lifestyle is one of the biggest contributors when it comes to violent crime. The age of most victims of violent crime um, is, you know, people in the teens and mid-twenties, early twenties, up to the mid-twenties. Uh, conversely, you know, in the UK at least, it's the elderly that are the least likely to be victims of violent crime. It should be obvious that it's not the physical ability to ward off assault that's responsible for these statistics. 
It's a difference in lifestyle, which is putting the younger people at most risk and the elderly at least risk. Uh, getting our youngsters excited about combat sports to the point where they are committed to success can be a significant part of self-protection, not because of any physical techniques, but because it fosters a positive lifestyle and hence greatly reduces the risk of them being a victim of assault. Now, Another thing is it should always be remembered that combat sports give youngsters a chance to prove themselves. Uh, one of the things that Western society is lacking, in my view, is a recognised path to adulthood. It's natural for young men and women to want to prove themselves and earn their adulthood. And we have no society-wide way of achieving this, and hence young men and women create their own ways to prove themselves. And these ways are not always the most beneficial to society or the individual. I mean, combat sports can provide one way for youngsters to test themselves and earn their stripes. So in this way too, combat sports can contribute to a positive lifestyle. Uh, Reality-based self-protection should always stress the need for a positive lifestyle and a healthy attitude to personal safety over physical technique. But in and of itself, self-protection training does not provide aspects of that positive lifestyle in the same way that combat sports do. It also needs to be said that some uh, sections of the self-protection community have an unhealthy obsession with crime and violence. The disproportionate fear of crime can be as debilitating um, to the individual as you know crime can itself. You know, um, you know, paranoia is not a healthy state to be in. We have this situation where healthy awareness can be replaced by a wholly unhealthy paranoia. Um, Reality-based self-protection is solely concerned with keeping the individual safe from crime and violence. It's about avoiding the negative, not creating the positive. So to reiterate what I said earlier, sport is not a good solution to self-protection. It does, however, foster a positive lifestyle which is a good thing in and of itself and which can also, as a natural consequence, reduce the likelihood of being a target of, uh, for violent crime. The traditional martial arts can certainly foster a positive lifestyle too, of course, and it can be a lifestyle that's open to people of all ages, whereas combat sports tend to be predominantly open to the, the youth. However, there's not the same demand as there is with combat sports. The frequent testing of competition uh, demands regular training, a good diet and a healthy lifestyle. Traditional arts, while they can foster all those things, they don't demand it. As is evidenced by the senior practitioners, who while still endorsing the positive lifestyle that traditional martial arts can offer, can only wrap their belt around their torso once. Combat sports, because of their competitive nature, don't permit this hypocrisy. You have to live well to compete at high levels. You know, and that brings us to the next positive attribute of uh, combat sports, which is increased, increased health and fitness. You know, in Western societies, violence is far less likely to impact on your life than ill health is. Way more people are killed because of obesity, heart disease, smoking-related illness, etc., than are killed via violence. Now, as discussed a few moments ago, combat sports demand regular exercise and a good diet uh, in a way that traditional art and reality-based self-protection do not. And this is because of the lack of testing again. Physical fitness is a must for effective self-protection due to the huge demands conflicts place on the body. However, the sight of out-of-shape self-protection instructors and practitioners is not an uncommon one. They can get away with being very unfit and out of shape because their skills are not tested like the combat athletes and hence this glaring inconsistency is never exposed. While traditional arts, reality-based self-protection and combat sports should all promote physical fitness, only combat sports demands it. It is possible to be involved in traditional arts and self-protection and not be in good shape. 
It's not possible to do either properly without being in good shape, of course, but we do see out-of-shape traditionalists and reality-based practitioners all the time. The same can't be said of combat athletes because they can't win if they're in poor physical condition. So the next element of combat sports that I wish to extol the virtues of is that of fun. For the vast majority of people, there is little need for everyday self-protection skills. If we do find ourselves fending off criminal assaults every day, then it's our lifestyle that needs looked at, not an increased focus on self-protection skills. The traditional arts are primarily practiced for you know, physical self-protection, personal challenge, interest and enjoyment. Um, there can also be enjoyment found in self-protection training too. Uh, combat sports too can be great fun. So whatever aspect of the martial arts you choose to focus on, you need to enjoy it to some degree. The idea that we do what we do for fun is frowned upon by some as they feel it cheapens the very serious business of the martial arts. The bottom line though is that people rarely spend lots of time and, on, and effort on things they find unenjoyable. To some degree we all find what we do enjoyable, whether that's the training itself, the results of the training, uh, the feeling of making progress, the people you get to spend time with, you know, whatever. Uh, people simply won't do something unless it is felt to be serving some need and to be enjoyable as a result. While what we find fun varies from individual to individual, we all like to have fun and enjoy ourselves. While combat sports may not be everyone's idea of fun, it must be understood that for many people they are hugely enjoyable, and that alone is a good enough reason to practice them. I mean, for my part, I like exploring traditional kata and learning how they can be applied in the modern world. That is fun for me. And because it's fun, I do it lots, and hence I've got reasonably good at it. Now, for others, they will have no interest in that, and that's absolutely fine. Find what you enjoy and increase the quality of your life by pursuing your chosen martial niche. We should also accept that other people will do the same, and they may not agree with us about what they find to be the most enjoyable aspects of the martial arts. Now, my own personal view is that any system I practice must be both life-preserving and life-enhancing. And by life-preserving, I mean it must be capable of dealing with the unprovoked violence of others, and it must keep me fit and healthy. However, that alone's not enough. It also must be life-enhancing, by which I mean I must gain enjoyment from it, and it must improve the quality of my life. So if I can tick those boxes, then that'll be something that appeals to me. Now, while sport may not be ideal preparation for self-protection, it is nevertheless life-preserving in the sense of increasing health and fitness. And those that enjoy combat sports, it's definitely life-enhancing. I can therefore see how people would be attracted to it, especially if physical self-protection is not an overriding concern, because it fulfills those other criteria extremely well for the reasons you know we've been discussing. Now, there are many other positive benefits to combat sports, and there's a good chance I may not have picked on you on your personal favourite, you know, if you have a personal favourite. The key point, though, is that combat sports have much inherent value. They don't need to make a claim to be relevant to self-protection in order to have value. Uh, practitioners and supporters of combat sports should focus on the inherent value of what they do. Relevance to self-protection is essentially a strawman argument against combat sports. Those who practice combat sports should therefore not choose to, uh, to validify what they do on that basis. And, you know, when the more intolerant wing of the traditional and reality-based communities attack combat sports, you know, there are better arguments to be made in defense of combat sports. Combat sports have an objective measure of skill. They promote a positive lifestyle. They increase health and fitness. They develop honesty, humility, and a strong work ethic, self-discipline, 
Um, and they're also fun and can be usually enjoyable and so on. There is much that combat sports do far better than their traditional and reality-based uh, counterparts. Um, the case for combat sports should be argued on that basis. Um, the martial arts you know, have innumerable styles and methods, all designed to address many different needs and objectives. And this is something that, in my view, should be embraced. There is not one true path that everyone needs converted to. Diversity in practice and approach is what makes martial arts so popular. There will be an art and approach that will fit perfectly with the needs of almost every individual. The trouble we have is when we try to make a single art or a single approach fit all objectives. And we see that a lot, but it doesn't work that way around. We need to identify the objective and then find the approach that best addresses that objective. It's a huge and very common error to take one form of practice and assume it will perfectly address all objective and contexts. No approach, whether modern or traditional, sport or self-protection focused, can be the optimum solution for all objectives. Combat sports, while they may have some unintentional crossover, are not good solutions to criminal violence because they're not designed to be. Away from that, they have many intrinsic positive attributes which may fulfil the objectives of the individual practitioner way better than traditional or self-protection focused training could. Self-protection skills are not the only thing of value that the broad church of martial arts has to offer. You know, we need to get away from using self-protection as the only valid measure. Combat sports are an extremely valuable component of the martial arts. They should not be dismissed or slighted, but looked at objectively for the many benefits they have and the many things they do extremely well. No approach can be all things to all men, so we need to accept the diversity in approaches, the differing needs of differing objectives, and what the individual finds enjoyable and beneficial will vary. When we can do that, the martial arts of a whole will be much better off, and we'll see all approaches valued for their own inherent qualities. Uh, thank you very much for listening to that. I hope you found it of uh, some value and entertaining enough to <laughs> warrant the expenditure of time. Uh, just a few little things to kind of close with. Uh, first one again, I hope to be back with the, the new podcast uh, pretty shortly. You know, not a big gap like there has been on the last one. Um, other things to remember is, uh, obviously, if you're interested in uh, pursuing practical karate further and, you know, affiliating with myself... Uh, there's the World Combat Association, which is run by myself, Peter Constantine, Jeff Thompson. Um, if you want to check out details for that, if you just do a web search for World Combat Association, you can find all the details there. And the other thing, which I'm sure most you'll be aware of, but just in case you're not, is that there's the Practical Katabunkai YouTube channel, which I've, I've set up you know, a few years ago. We recently added, a, the last video we did was a 25-minute a long instructional video on... Um, using the first quarter of Kashanku or Kanku Dai as a, a single flow drill. Um, so if you, and if you go and check that out, I mean, they are proven very popular, those videos. The, the amount of views they get is pretty high. So uh, I think there's 60-something plus, uh, all free, you know, just... Uh, um, so you just go along, obviously, and have a watch of those, and hopefully they're of interest. And Which, again, find I'd like to sign off by, you know, obviously these podcasts don't cost anything, the YouTube videos don't cost anything, all the articles I put out don't cost anything, the newsletters, all of that kind of stuff. It's all free to everybody. But obviously it's not free for me to produce. You know, it does take, you know, time, effort, and money on my behalf. 
Um, so therefore, I'm always very grateful to those who organise the seminars, who attend the seminars, those who buy the books and DVDs, because you're the ones who finance the whole thing and make it possible for me to provide this uh, free material. So um, if you do like what we do and you know you'd like to support it, um, you can few simple ways you can do that. One free way is just tell people. You know, the more people that are viewing and listening, the better. Um, and if you'd like to support us in a more direct way, you know, come along to seminars, you know, buy a book, buy a DVD, buy a download, you know, that way you get some, you know, extra information and some hopefully some material you'll find, uh, you know, in depth and of great use to you, hopefully. And uh, also it helps support me in, in producing all this uh, extra free content as well. So, yeah, massive thanks for listening in. Um, I hope you're having a, a good time until next time. And uh, yeah, I'll see you soon. Okay, take care. Bye.